We partner with about 80 different groups and agencies locally to be the hands and feet of Jesus. You've got a passport in your uh, seat, just some of the ways that you can get connected. And uh, anybody saved this week? Anybody, anybody love Jesus in the house? Let me see, let me see. All right. Okay. Let me tell you what, part of what that means. Part of what that means is you, when you were born again, you entered into a mission with Jesus. And so many people think, well, that means I go to church on Sunday and I'm good and I live my life and I have my priorities. No, what it means is your priorities shift and you take on the heart of Jesus and we're his hands and feet. Amen? It's, amen? And so we're on mission. And that's what this series is about. How can we be more missional? How can we connect with the points of our community, Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, and the uttermost parts of the earth? So this weekend, I've done something that we rarely do, bring in somebody from the outside, although he's not an outsider to Faith Promise, Bert Rosen, who directs Knox Area Rescue Ministries. And, and it is a great ministry that we partner with. And come on up, Bert. The reason that I asked Bert to speak this weekend is because I want to put a face to the people that we ignore, that we don't know who they are, where they came from. I want you to know where the people that we care for on the streets really do come from. So let's give Bert a good old faith promise. East Tennessee, welcome. Thank you, Chris. And uh, uh, how great it is to be in the, uh, uh, the house of the Lord with people who, who love uh, Jesus. And it is just a delight to be here. You know, the, the Apostle Paul, uh, when he was writing his letter to the Philippians, said that I thank my God upon every remembrance of you for the partnership that we share in the gospel. And watching the video and seeing how this church partners with others, how it partners with CARM uh, for the sake of the gospel is just such a tremendous blessing. And, you know, this church is involved. You've had a, a men's group down at CARM for more than five years, a women's group down at CARM for more than five years. When Operation Inasmuch is going on, people from this church, church are coming down to CARM and helping the halls look much more beautiful than they would without your help. All a part of oper- offering overwhelming biblical hospitality to the folks that come through uh, our doors. And so again, it's a delight to be here with you this morning. When it was first, the invitation was first extended, and it looked like it was going to be three services, I was immediately reminded of the story of a little boy named Johnny. Now, Johnny was standing in the back of a very large church, looking up at all of the pictures that lined the walls. And he's just standing there looking up at the faces and the pastor of the church comes alongside, stands right next to him and now they're both looking up at the pictures. And finally little Johnny gets up the the nerve to say, Pastor, who are all those people up there? And he said, well Johnny, those are the people who have died in the service. Johnny said, well Pastor, is that the first service or the second service? Well, you know, what, what I can tell you is that uh, in being here this morning, there is no risk of anybody dying in the service because there is just so much life uh, and vibrancy here. And again, it, it's a delight to be here. But in the same way that it is a delight and honor to be here, I would have to confess to you that I didn't really want to be here. Nah, not that I didn't want to be at Faith Promise. I didn't want to be at Faith Promise didn't want to be in Knoxville, didn't want to be working with the homeless. That simply was just not in the Bert and Carolyn Rosen game plan. But perhaps you have learned like we have that sometimes we've got a plan 
and it doesn't always line up with God's game plan, and sometimes he just kind of rearranges the order of things uh, to set us on the course that he would have us be, even if that course is not always abundantly clear. That's what has happened in, in our life. And as I share a little bit this morning, it's the journey that Carolyn and I have been on, but it could just as easily be your journey. But the journey starts for us uh, in the book of Numbers chapter nine. And, and if you've got your Bibles or your iPad or your phone, just b- pull it out for a second and look at the ninth chapter of Numbers. Uh, I'll be reading from the uh, New International Version. Uh, and it's right around the 17th verse, but it's talking about the cloud above the tabernacle. And it says this, whenever the cloud lifted from the tent, the Israelites set out. Wherever the cloud settled, the Israelites encamped. At the Lord's command, the Israelites set out, and at his command, they encamped. As long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. When the cloud remained over the tabernacle a long time, the Israelites obeyed the Lord's order and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was over the tabernacle only a few days, and at the Lord's command, they would encamp. And then at his command, they would set out. And if you were to go read down through the remainder of that chapter, you'd continue to see the message uh, that's being drilled home there is number one, the Hebrews moved, when God said move through the cloud, they moved. When he said stay, they stayed. But it really didn't matter whether the cloud stayed a day, a week, a month, or a year. However long it stayed, that's how long they stayed. But woven throughout there is actually eight times in the nine verses in obedience to the Lord's command. They wanted to be obedient to his command. And for Carolyn and I, uh, in in our journey with Christ, uh, she coming to know him before I did, being directly involved in me coming to know him and me being delivered from the drugs and the other things that I was doing in my life. And now we wanted to commit ourselves to being obedient to his command. Well, sometimes when you say, God, I want to be obedient to your command, uh, you, you open up the door for things that maybe you just didn't uh, expect. That turned out to be our case. So let me kind of just take you back. We're, we're living in Miami, Florida, and uh, I'm running a halfway house in the inner city of Miami working with, with ex-prisoners. And we're towards the tail end of that 10 years and the cloud moved us from Miami, Florida to Louisville, Kentucky to join Prison Fellowship Ministries. For those of you who may not know Prison Fellowship, this was the organization started by Chuck Colson after going to prison for Watergate. He came out of prison and said, I'll never forget the people that I saw in prison. And I had the joy and the privilege and the honor of working side by side with Chuck for, for 17 years. And I gotta tell you, I had no intention of ever leaving there. So long as God would see fit to let me go into the prisons, so long as he would see fit to let me have two legs to move, I would continue to serve in that arena. Uh, For a whole host of reasons, there's nothing better than being where you sense God wants you to be, but also because there was something unique about staring through a jail cell, looking in the eyes of a person who's on death row, knowing that they're never gonna see the light of day again, and your mission is to bring a little bit of light and a little bit of hope into dark places. Well, that journey was, as I said, uh, Miami, Louisville, Kentucky, Washington, D.C., Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and it was towards the tail end of that 17 years that we began to get this little rumbling in the stomach. Perhaps you've had it as well. You know change is in the wind. You know God's up to something. You just don't know exactly what he's up to. And there's just that little 
rumbling. And so because for Carol and I it was this desire to be obedient to what he would have us do, okay, God, show us what that is. Well, we had a series of things that then occurred. The first real eye-opener was the day the phone rang. Carolyn had been to see a doctor for some challenges that she was having. Doctor said, need to see you all in the office as quickly as possible. Down we go to the office, we're sitting there with the doctor, and there we learned that Carolyn had been diagnosed with cancer. Now, for us, that was bone chilling. Uh, For Carolyn, you can imagine what would have been going on inside of her. For me, it meant I'm gonna lose my wife. I'm gonna be a single dad. Now, I'd love to tell you that my initial response was one of great faith, but it wasn't. I crumbled, and I thought, oh my gosh. God, how am I ever gonna survive without Carolyn? How am I ever gonna survive being a single dad? Well, by God's grace, a neighbor three doors down was the nurse to a new physician that had moved into the Pittsburgh area, was ranked one of the top three surgeons in the US, Carolyn had the opportunity to get in as his first patient when he wasn't taking patients. They got the surgery, they got all the cancer, Carolyn never had to have chemo and she's been cancer free uh, ever since and we're profoundly grateful for that. But, it's it's a testimony to God's grace and goodness. But here's what happened in the midst of all of that. God opened our eyes in ways that they had never been opened before to what happened when cancer hits your house. Now, this was my wife, this was my family. It wasn't someone else's family who had talked about how God had intervened in their life and all of a sudden, in ways that we never knew before, we understand, understood and appreciated just what goes on inside the life of a person when cancer has come to call. Well, because Carolyn came through it, we thought, okay, God, for whatever reason, you have allowed us to come through that, and is it by chance that you would have us move our clouds? Should I go to the work for the American Cancer Society? Is it time to leave prison fellowship? Do something to bring your love and grace into people whose lives have been impacted by that. Well, we we learned that that was not the case. Fast forward a little bit. I'm, uh, I'm sitting in an Applebee's restaurant in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This was October of 2000. Cell phone rings, and because I was having lunch with someone, I ignored the the first vibration on the call. Then another one came almost immediately afterwards, and I ignored that. And then it came a third time, and I thought, well, let me go ahead and pick up the phone and see what this is. Once again, a voice on the other line. Is this Burt Rosen? Uh, Yes, it is. Uh, Mr. Rosen, this is Allegheny General Hospital. We've got your wife in the emergency room. You better get down here as quickly as you can. It doesn't look very good. I scampered off to the hospital, and there was Carolyn laying on the stretcher, black and blue and bloody from head to toe, her head immobilized from the trauma of the accident that she had just been in. Uh, Carolyn's a diabetic. She had passed out at the wheel on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. By God's grace, she didn't hit another car. Nobody else was involved in the accident. But at this particular exit, you've got to come off. There's a big grassy knoll that sits up here. You kind of curve around and you come off. Well, she hit the bottom of that hill at an estimated 80 to 90 miles an hour without braking. That then sent her straight up the hill and it turned into a launch ramp, which is now sending her over the ravine, over the Mack trucks that are coming on the other side. And I'd always said to Carolyn, if you wanna try out for Dukes of Hazard, let me know. <laughs> There's an easier way to go about doing that. Well, they had to life cut her out of the car and life flight her to the hospital. She had her first helicopter ride uh, in a way that she never really planned on having it. But there she sat, 
the, or there she'd laid, I should say, the doctors called me out and they said, we can't make any promises, but we're absolutely gonna do the best that we can. Well, they did a great job. Uh, Carolyn is now the bionic woman. She's made up of uh, almost as much titanium as she is other pieces in her body. And you would never know it to see Carolyn walk because she hides it so well. But that process from the emergency room to the trauma unit, to the rehab hospital, to a wheelchair, to a walker, to a cane, ultimately having to go through all of the things that you have to do when you navigate through shopping malls um, and find that the handicapped parking spaces are taken, the aisles are too narrow, the difficulty and the challenge of having to put a wheelchair in the car every time you wanna go somewhere and all of a sudden, we're contending with the notion we've never had to deal with this before. I never realized just how difficult it can be if that's what life has thrown your way now. And so with all of that, it's, God, you've somehow allowed us to come through that. Carolyn made it through the cancer and she's alive and walking. She's made it through the accident and she's doing okay now, apart from the aches and pains that still come back to visit every now and then. Should we be leaving prison fellowship? Is this where you're moving the cloud? Go to Johnny and Friends or some other ministry where you can make a difference because you now understand something in a way that you never understood it before. Well, that wasn't it either. You fast forward a little bit and uh, uh, come to my family. Carolyn and I have uh, four children, two boys, two girls. Uh, the oldest, Matthew, our son, uh, was probably the most entrepreneurial, the most academically promising, the most ath athletically promising of all of the kids, played football for Oakton High School in Fairfax County, Virginia. And when it was time to go to college, Matthew was making his choices from University of Miami, Penn State, or Virginia Tech. We had grown up in South Florida, and so Matthew's dream was to be a hurricane. And so down to University of Miami, he went. He was working on the marine science lab when Hurricane Andrew hit. When Hurricane Andrew came along, it blew the marine science lab literally out of the water and Matthew had no place to continue. He stayed down to help with the cleanup for just a little bit, of, uh, for a little while, and then ultimately came back home and said, I don't think I wanna stay down here and live in South Florida anymore. And so he came home, enrolled at Virginia Tech where most of his friends had gone and now life was back on track for Matthew and for us until the third year of college. Now everything up until the third year had been what I would call the typical um, college experience. We'd go down to Blacksburg and visit Matthew or he'd come home on weekends, you know, dump his laundry, hope that everything be washed, dried and folded when it was time to go back uh, on Sunday afternoon and everything was just fine until the day Matthew sent a letter home saying that he had decided to drop out of school and wanted me to proofread the letter that was uh, gonna be mailed to the dean. And it was that moment where as a parent, Carol and I looked at it and we said, something's wrong. This letter doesn't have the command of the English language that we know Matthew has. Something has gone terribly awry. But if it had been drugs or alcohol or anything like that, certainly would have seen it because if you've ever been down that path yourself, you know how to recognize it in other people. So how did we miss it if that was it? Well, Matthew did end up dropping out of school, came home. The son who came home was not the son who went away. Something was dramatically different. And while we tried to contend with it for just a little while, life at home, in the Rosen household at least, had become a living hell. We didn't like being in our own house. We couldn't wait to get to church, and after church, we didn't want to go home. 
We went for long walks after church, anything to avoid having to go back into the house because it had just become so unpleasant, so uncomfortable. And Matthew's behavior towards Carolyn um, and, and his siblings was something that we just didn't know how to contend with. We have never been through anything like this before. I called a dear friend who offered some counsel and he said, Bert, you and Carolyn have given up control of your home to your son. Do everything you can to get him some help, but if he doesn't want any help, you may have to ask him to leave. Well, we had to make the painful decision to ask him to leave. Probably one of the hardest decisions we've ever made. And I can recall that day telling Matthew that he was gonna have to leave. He wasn't welcome to stay in our home anymore. We gave him the address of the rescue mission uh, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, where we were still living. And Carolyn and I stood at the storm door as we watched Matthew walk down the street with his rollerboard suitcase, tears streaming down our eyes, saying, what happened to our son? Where did he go? What changed? Well, Matthew didn't go to the shelter. Somehow, being the entrepreneurial kid that he was, he managed to get himself enrolled at Duquesne University, apartment on Forbes Avenue, life is back on, on track for, for all of us, and now it's graduation time. We're getting all the invitations for uh, rings and robes and all the other stuff that's a part of graduation. We go to the wintertime commencement, we're snapping the photos, we go out to dinner afterwards that night. It's a Sunday evening, Monday morning, the phone rings. Chaplain at the Allegheny County Jail that I knew through my work at Prison Fellowship, and he said, Bert, we've got Matthew in jail. Assault and battery on a police officer, resisting arrest with violence, and he ran off a litany of other misdemeanor and, and felony charges. And we wondered what could have possibly happened between Sunday night and Monday morning. Well, it seems as though Matthew had created quite a stir on campus and had some of the administration feeling just a little unsettled. So they decided to let him walk across the stage and receive a diploma knowing full well that they weren't going to give it to him allowing us as a family to go through the process. And then on Monday, when he went back to the registrar to get what he thought was his diploma, they told him he really hadn't graduated what they had done. Matthew became a little bit upset, and um, the rest is kind of history as far as that story uh, is concerned. Well, now we're going into a midnight arraignment, and there comes our dear son, Matthew. Shackled at the wrist, shackled at the ankles for the very first time. And, oh, if you could just imagine the anguish uh, in, in the mind of a parent seeing that in your child whom you kind of looked at as, as your pride and joy. Well, we had hoped that the judge would uh, prescribe something for Matthew, test something that would get him a little bit of help, but the judge just didn't want to be bothered. It was Christmas Eve. He just wanted to go home. Well, we let Matthew stay in jail for a couple of days, hoping that something might develop. It didn't. We brought Matthew home, but unfortunately, the same Matthew that we had seen before was now back in the house. It was a little bit difficult, but in some ways it kind of solved itself because we woke up one morning and Matthew was gone. We didn't hear from her a little, for a little while, and then we started getting emails from what we later discovered was a wired Burger King in midtown Manhattan, and Matthew had somehow gotten himself to New York City, was now living on the streets of New York, and so we corresponded for just a little while. It was always a bit of an odd correspondence, and then the correspondence stopped. We didn't hear from him for quite a while. Now, it just so happens that my work at Prison Fellowship, New York City was one of the areas that I was responsible for, and we had offices that were two blocks from where the Twin Towers used to stand. And my normal practice would have been to fly into LaGuardia, take a cab or a subway or something. And, uh, but on this particular day, uh, a coworker picked me up. Now, I have to say this. <clears throat> Being in New York City, 
I was pretty adept at ignoring panhandlers, ignoring the homeless. And in fact, they were pretty invisible. Maybe they've been invisible to you at some point in time uh, as well. But I always managed to pay no attention to them other than them being a little bit of a nuisance. Well, on this particular day, one of my coworkers picked me up and we were walking from the water to where the offices were and out of the corner of my eye, I'm now noticing the people sleeping on the subway grates, on the benches with cardboard kind of perched or newspaper perched in tent-like fashion over the benches. And while I had seen them a thousand times before, I was noticing them in ways today that I have never noticed them before. And I just began to cry. My coworker wondering what was going on, I explained to him that uh, just perhaps our son might be in New York City. And he was a man of greater faith that, than I was. He said, Bert, why don't we go on and do what we need to do today? And at the end of the day, if Matthew is here, we will go find him. To which I thought, yeah, right. Seven million people in the city of New York, we're gonna go find one person. So we did, we went through our, our work that day Tail end of the day, he said, all right, let's go find Matthew. And his simple prayer was, God, if Matthew is anywhere in New York City, let him send out like a satellite signal and lead us right to him. And he said, let's go. We got in the car, drove from downtown where the offices were up to Midtown, and we were in this part of the city where you'd have no reason to assume that someone like Matthew might be hanging out. And Bill said, get out here. So I got out of the car started walking around, didn't really see anything that would be uh, worth a, attention. Now, we hadn't heard from Matthew in quite a while. Carolyn was still at home recovering from the accident that I described earlier, cell phone rings. A cell phone's always ringing and bringing news of, of some sort. Well, it's Carolyn. She said, Bert, I've got Matthew on the other line. Where is he? He's in New York City. We're in New York City. Well, and we began to go back and forth, and you can imagine the exchange. Finally, now wanting to wonder where the landmarks are, we were within 100 yards of each other. I mean, it was amazing. Well, now, as we're walking, I can see Matthew off in the distance, and we're having what I call the Lassie moment. Anybody remember Lassie? You know, here's Timmy over here, here's Lassie over here, and in slow motion, they begin making their way towards each other for what's gonna be the boy dog embrace, the tail wag, the whole nine yards. And as I'm walking towards Matthew, I'm thinking, am I gonna deck him or am I gonna hug him? <laughs> I'm so mad at him. I'm so angry for what he has done to our family, and I'm assuming it's all his fault what he's done to his siblings, all of the stuff that wells up inside of us by someone who has inflicted so much pain. Well, as we got closer, I'm pleased to report that I hugged him and I didn't deck him. We embraced for two minutes, it felt like 20. I took him back to the hotel, he slept, I sat and watched him sleep all night, but he was dirty, he was smelly, it seemed like he hadn't showered in who knows how long. Next day we had breakfast and it's decision time. You know, Matthew, would you come home with me? No, Dad, this is where I live now. Where? New York, where? On the streets. The streets are where I choose to live now. Well, of course, that was saddening. I emptied all of the toiletries out of my suitcase, gave him everything I had, and now watched him again walk down the street with his rollerboard suitcase after having given him the address of the rescue mission in New York City. Well, he stayed there for a little while and we would end up seeing Matthew um, two more times. 
The last time was a brief stay in Pittsburgh and then Matthew disappeared. We've not seen or heard from him in 11 years and we have no idea really if he is uh, dead or alive. But in ways that only God, who else can take the challenges in our life and fashion them into something that we never would have thought? Remember, we're trying to figure out where this cloud is now. Was it the cancer? Was it the accident? Well, certainly, having a homeless child was never on the radar screen uh, for us. And so we, um, we ended up losing Matthew to the streets, and perhaps one day we'll have an opportunity to, to find him, and we certainly uh, pray for that and would appreciate your prayers. Uh, it's not a unique story. Uh, we hear them all the time, and I read recently of the family uh, here that the church just did a, a service with whose son didn't come home on Mother's Day. Ah, oh, it's a heartache. But in all of that, I get a phone call saying that Knox Area Rescue Ministries is looking for someone, the previous person who was there had moved on to something else, and would you be interested in coming to work for Knox Area Rescue Ministries and moving to Knoxville, Tennessee? I didn't even have to think about it. The answer was a flat out no. A, Knoxville's not on the radar screen. Now, I love Knoxville now, but back then, you know, nice place to visit, not sure I'd want to call it home, uh, pass through a couple of times, but if I'm moving somewhere by choice, I'm going back to South Beach where I grew up. You know, Carolyn, I love the sand, the surf, you know, daylight savings, you could be on the ocean for a couple of hours in the evening, that's just great. I also have no desire to work with the homeless. I thought that was the end of it until he asked this one question. He said, would you be willing to pray about it? Oh, shoot. Now, why did you have to ask me that question? If you didn't ask me to pray about it, I'm off the hook. But sometimes, I mean, how many of you have ever had someone say, would you be willing to pray for so-so? You say, no, 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 uh, I don't think so. Um, well, we did, and it was the answer to that prayer. Uh, actually, the prayer wasn't very sincere either, as a matter of fact. It's, God, if you want to go to Knoxville, Tennessee, and work with the homeless, we will, but we know you don't want us to. Thank you very much. Amen. And uh, on, on, you ever do that, God, if you really want me to go to the mission field? Well, came to Knoxville and um, uh, really found a difficult time getting uh, adjusted. Couldn't do anything really but, but sit in the office, shuffle paper, because I couldn't go look at the people on the street. I couldn't look at the people who were walking through the doors each day because the pain and the anguish on the faces was too much to bear to begin with, but they all reminded me of Matthew. Every single one of them. I thought, God, what have you done? Have I committed some vile sin? Or do you have some sick sense of humor? Why would you call us to come to a place like Knoxville, a place we didn't want to be, to do a work we didn't want to do. And then I was reminded of um, St. Augustine's response when someone asked him uh, what love looked like. St. Augustine's response was that it has eyes to see misery and want. It has the ears to hear the sighs and sorrows of our fellow men. That's what love looks like. And as Carolyn and I began to walk the streets and others, it was this simple prayer, God, help us to see with your eyes, hear with your ears, and feel with your heart the needs that are out there. And with that, God began to open things up. And, and it's because of that that Carolyn and I have had the blessing, along with a team of other great people, of, of serving, you know, the, the three to four or 500 people that call CARM home every single night to be a part of serving anywhere between 1,000 and 1,600 meals every day. And you know, 
What we know is this. There are certain things that break God's heart. You and I, as author Tim Keller says, we tend to put people in categories. Those we deem deserving, those we deem undeserving. Well, the deserving are those folks that you and I see on the news every day who've been displaced because of a, of a storm, a natural disaster, someone who's fled an abusive situation through no fault of their own. They find themselves in tremendous need. But what about those that we think are there because of their own fault? Panhandling at the exit on Cedar Bluff. The drunks, the bums, the winos, the addicts, the prostitutes that line the streets of Broadway Many of us, Keller suggests, put them in the undeserving category. But you know what he says? None of us are deserving. Not you, not me. If it were not for God's grace coming to us undeserved, none of us would be able to claim him as Lord. And he says, I want you to look at others that way as well. Stop making the distinction between the deserving and the undeserving. Well, you know, I've thought about so many people that have come through CARM's doors over the years, and I have to tell you, when I thought about the partnership in the gospel, I've had two people come up to me just today, this morning, both of whom were once the folks on the street, that because of the partnership that we share in the gospel, they're now worshiping here with you. They have gone from being the person who was out there on the streets that no one wanted to pay any attention to, to coming full circle now, not without the challenges. But isn't that what we really want to see happen? Yes, we want. Yeah, amen. Well, you know, um, the church has an opportunity to cast a large shadow. And as you're looking at your passports and you're looking at compassion, uh, you know, I, I have this picture in my head of the people who line the streets of Broadway, and I kind of juxtapose that against the picture that it must have, what it must have been like for Peter when Peter was out there, and everybody brought everybody out to the streets, and, and Peter didn't know what to make of it, and they said, Peter, they just want your shadow to fall over them. That's all they care about. They just want your shadow to fall over them. And if you think about what an amazing opportunity Faith Promise has to cast an amazing shadow over the people who line our streets. But I gotta tell you, it's not just the people who are on the streets of Broadway. They're sitting in your pews next to you. You're seeing them in the restaurants. If you listen and if you open your eyes, you will see things that you never thought you'd see, and you'd hear things that you'd never thought you'd hear, not because you didn't have eyes and ears, but because you had responded to an invitation from God to reach out in a different way. And I just want to leave you with this uh, in closing. It's, it's a proverb. It's an ancient proverb, actually. I don't know the source of it. But it says this, Sometimes I would like to ask God why he allows poverty, suffering, and injustice when he could do something about it. Well, why don't you ask him? Because I'm afraid he'd ask me the same question. You know, as, as we wrap up here, it really has been a delight and a, and a joy to be with you. And I want to ask you, as, as you pray about where God might be leading you, think about the amazing places that he can take you. But if you will pray this prayer as part of that, 
God, help me to see with your eyes. Help me to hear with your ears. Help me to feel with your heart. Let my heart be broken by the things that break your heart. God, let my heart be broken by the things that break your heart. It's the poverty, it's the, poverty, it's the suffering, it's, it's the injustice, it's all of those things. And you know, if you look back and we were to take the time to go through the 58th chapter of Isaiah, they were struggling with that as well. So they said, God, we're, we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. We're going to church. We're, we're paying our tithe. We're doing all of the things that the law says we ought to do, but you don't seem to hear us. To which God's response for Isaiah was, that's because you don't get it. You've missed it. That's not the kind of fasting what I'm looking for. What I want you to do is break the bonds of the yoke. I want you to untie the cords. I want you to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, take care of the poor wandering soul. But he takes it even a step beyond that. And in Isaiah 58.10, in the, new interva- in the NIV, he said, spend yourself on behalf of the poor. He was telling them to spend themselves. God, open my eyes, let me see, and then let me figure out how you would have me spend myself making an amazing difference in the lives of those that God has placed before you and before this church.